Welcome. I'm glad you're here. I'm Chris. I'm teaching pastor here at Riverstone. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can open to Matthew 6. So we're going to land. Uh, but last week, we started a conversation on prayer and really just kind of pointed out that Jesus pointed out uh, that just like all the activities and disciplines of the Christian life, uh, prayer can devolve into superficial, meaningless, empty phrases. It's the first thing Jesus says basically about prayer, which is many people's experience of prayer, right? It's like what you tolerate with me up here, in the, you know, and then it's what you tolerate at the dinner table when someone's like, oh, we should, you know, do the thing. And I think it was A.W. Tozer that said something like, man is continually flung from the depths to the surface, to the superficial, uh, as if on the spokes of a wheel, as if the natural monotony of experience and life has the effect of pushing you away from deep, meaningful things to superficial, uh, fleeting things. And it's true. For all sorts of reasons, in all sorts of places, we tend to press autopilot after a while. Like you were just about to press it when I started talking about it, right? We quit engaging. <laughs> I got you, didn't I? We quit fully committing. We quit applying our mind. We, could, we quit applying our hearts and perhaps unintentionally disconnect from the meaning and depth of not just God, of everything, of life, of marriage, of job, of work, of hobbies, of things you enjoy, of parenting, of all the sorts of things we do in life, we tend to, after a while, quit engaging on the level that actually means something to us. And then our relationships and our jobs and all the things that we once found so much life in are now empty and meaningless, right? Because at some point, you press autopilot, bro. You quit engaging. You quit pursuing her. And now... It feels empty, it feels meaningless because we tend to, in all places of our heart and life, after a while, get the idea, I got this, I don't need to put forth effort, I don't need to engage, I don't need to press further, autopilot. And we exist in externals at that point. We no longer feel the meaning of things, the depth of things, we aren't moved by things anymore. We become a shell of a person as there are many shells of Christians. So whether it's your marriage, your work, your parenting, or any commitment, it has the potential to be emptied, right? It loses its life. And what we're getting to the Lord's Prayer, what we're about to get there, but before we get there, we need to sit with some of the things Jesus said before he got there. So the first thing Jesus said before he said how to pray was basically how not to pray. Sorry, that was a confusing sentence. He basically says... Here's how to empty prayer of its true meaning. He says, if you just want to, just want to totally deflate the whole thing, right? No power, <laughs> no enjoyment, no desire, no purpose. Just do it for the applause of other people. Pray nice and loud so people can hear you. Pray the words you think they are expecting you to pray to prove that you fulfill some idea of spiritual that they, you think they have, <laughs> right? So if they're big on sovereignty, drop that word a couple times, right? right? If they're big on like gospel, God, you know, just drop that a couple times in your prayer, you'll be good. 
You'll be in. They'll know you got it. You're the right kind of spiritual, right? Jesus said, if you turn prayer horizontal, if you turn prayer into a tool to grasp at spiritual reputation amongst the bubble you find yourself in, right? And that's all you'll get. That's what you'll get. Of course, it's going to feel meaningless. Of course, it's going to feel empty and superficial. You're just doing it on a meaningless and superficial level. So you want to, if you want to pray like I pray, and we mentioned last week, the only thing the disciples ever asked Jesus to teach them, Jesus to pray, right? Dude, healed people, rose people from the dead, all sorts of things. The only thing, Jesus to pray, right? If you want to pray like I pray, first thing you got to do is what we said last week, get alone. Got to get away from the crowds, get away from all of the other possible incentives of being a person who prays and pray. And then he said, that's the first step in the right direction. If you feel right now that your prayer life is meaningless, empty, devoid of purpose and significance and no joy at all in it, he says, well, you could be doing it wrong. You might be praying this way. And no wonder you're using a tool for one thing that was made for another. And so it, the, the effect is that it gets empty, right? So it's, it's so funny. The transaction we make, y'all, when we get in these bubble of Christian circles, we want to impress Christians, right? Listen, the transaction you make. So instead of growing in intimacy with the most satisfying, joyful, loving being in the universe, like instead of communing with the creator of all things, instead of being transformed to glory, to glory, to glory in the goodness of his presence, instead of experiencing the life-transforming power of his grace, Doug and Steve think you're cool, right? Like you're not gonna get any of that stuff, but man, they think you're in, right? You got the best end of that deal, right? <laughs> That's the mind-numbing transaction we make when we take something God gave us to create, to commune with him with and turn it into a tool this way, right? It's like just ridiculous. Turn prayer into a means to climb the ladder of popularity. Of course, it's going to feel empty, right? So Jesus shed his blood so you could know and love him. And that's fine. But I just really want to think people to think I'm cool, right? So anyway, most self-defeating trade we can ever make when it comes to prayer. So last week we said, the first thing that Jesus said, you guys want to be people who pray. Okay, first thing you got to do, get alone. Get out of everyone's earshot, get in the closet, close the door, and then start praying. So there's so much wisdom in his words, right? We, we just have to press pause for one second on this, okay? Because this, uh, this is not just a random thing in Jesus' teaching. He says this a lot. If you're going to do something good for others... Don't do it so other people can see. If you're going to give, don't give to where everyone sees that you're giving, right? You ever know those people that are like making great sacrifices for their family, except the only problem is the whole time they're making them, they're telling their family that they're making this great sacrifice? Jesus says, don't love like that. Don't sacrifice like that. <laughs> do you know that person? And for many, right, it explains a potential reason why their entire Christian experience has been meaningless and empty because this whole time they've just been performing. They've just been image managing, right? There's just the whole thing, y'all. You can get in the whole thing and all you're doing is trying to perform and manage your reputation amongst people that think that sort of thing's cool. It's a bubble. Y'all you know what I'm talking about? Like, can't Christians be a little bit of a bubble? You get in the bubble, and then you're like, oh, everyone, everyone, oh, we raise our hands for this part. Okay, all right, no, all right, we're good. Everyone's good. All right, how do we pray, all right? 
And then we just kind of fulfill, you play a role, right? You know what Jesus called that? You know the word he phrased? He took a term that referred to stage actors and he applied it to Christians. He said hypocrite. That, he made that up, y'all. I mean, as much as secular people like to rail against Christians, y'all, like Jesus was the first person who made it up. You're playing a part. You're just playing a part. There's no depth. There's no joy. There's no sustenance for your soul. There's no meaning in the, yeah, everyone else is into these words. I don't get the, I don't get these words. I don't know why, right? You're just playing a part. No wonder it can feel empty and meaningless. When we get in the door only for the sake of image management, right? Jesus talked so, so much about it, right? So you find yourself as a Christian going through the motions when in the depths of your heart, really, you're just fulfilling, well, so mommy and daddy get off my back or so that my friends think I'm in, or so my kids think I care about spiritual things. See, you can take things that were meant to function in between you and God and turn them into tools to control and manipulate outcomes to your own likings, can't you? And prayer can devolve into that. In fact, it's totally possible to have your entire Christian existence, lifestyle, entire journey lived only for the eyes of others, never concerning yourself with God himself. It's a possibility. Jesus knew that was a possibility. So when he says, when we do that, of course, it's going to feel empty and superficial because how you are using them has made it function like that in your experience, right? So last week we said, Jesus first had to say, get alone. And, and, and this is why I'm resting here. This is why I'm just pushing on a little bit further, why I'm pausing, why I'm bringing it back to your imagination right now. It's because superficiality has a death grip on our culture. And in our, in our society, and in many of our hearts, right? Uh, so much so that I thought, you know, we, we just, let's just sit with this just a second more. After talking with my wife last week after the service, she was pondering after the sermon how social media has impacted people's experience of prayer life. And I thought, what a fascinating idea. Uh, because social media has become the primary arena for what? Image management, right? It's where you prove you're an awesome, sophisticated mom or dad, right? It's where you prove that you think rightly about this or that. It's like the social cesspool of virtue signaling. That's what social media is. And this is what it's done to us. It has fostered pathways in our thinking. Look, think of your mind as a field, grass field. You just keep on going down that, that pathway. Guess what it does with that grass? It just makes a little road. You know what social media has done in our minds? It has fostered a pathway in which the whole goal is to create with perfectly cropped stock images a reputation. And it's just trotted out our thinking and habitually reinforced that everything in your life is not really for you and for joy and for and, you know, the people in your immediate presence. It's for proving to the dude that you don't even know that you have great dinners. <laughs> like every time we start to enjoy something for in and of itself, oh, I should gram this so that everyone else knows that I'm the type of person that enjoys this. And it's turned us into little puppets. I mean, it's just... It, 
It's carved out the substance of life itself, and it's created an allegiance to superficial exterior image management. And what happens when that bleeds its way into our spiritual life, right? All of our praying, all of our reading, all of our worshiping, all of our acts of charity then become a part of the well-curated efforts at image management, right? And it's, and Jesus said, if that's what your Christian life is about, you have gutted it. You've taken out the substance of it. Look, I love what we do on Sundays. I do, most of the time, right? Like most of the time, I'm excited to come here. <laughs> Worship with you fine folks. Get in the word, remind our hearts that we are founded on something stronger than our emotions. It's, great. it's a great time. Sometimes it's a great time, right? Sometimes. Play the right notes. If I don't screw up too much from the pulpit, say something stupid that embarrasses my wife. This is a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of what it means to know and love God. If you are resting the substance, look at me, if you are resting the substance of your Christian life on one hour on a Sunday morning, it is empty and meaningless. There's no way you can experience the kind of life and joy and vibrancy and abundance and holy presence of God, right? If you're just looking to do that one hour on a Sunday morning, it's great. I love what we do here. You are cheating yourself, my friend. If this is the only moment in your life where you give God two thoughts, you're not a Christian. Can I say that? I can. I just did. <gasps> it's out. Because... The evidence is pointing to the fact that you are playing a role. Because if the only time I talk to my wife is when all you guys are around looking at me, applauding me, saying, oh, you're such a loving husband, right? If the only time I acknowledge your presence is when I got a bunch of groupies around me who are applauding me, right? Like, something's wrong with that relationship. Something has become imbalanced. I've got way off my notes. Let's get back to it. All right. <laughs> Okay, he said get alone, right? And it deals with our tendency to drift into superficial existence, right? He deals with it head on, right between the eyes. Get alone. I mean, it just throws wet leather on the whole image management party, right? You know, right? So after talking to my wife, it reminded me of this portion of a book, which I think is hilarious, okay? And I hope, I hope you enjoy this. Uh, this is uh, Mike Cosper's Recapturing the Wonder. I witnessed a ritual sacrifice in the middle of a cool third wave coffee shop the other day. It's the sort of place that attracts herds of bearded hipsters <laughs> where they brew your coffee by hand, one cup at a time. I love this. I was sitting at a long row of benches against the wall watching the crowd as they ordered, mingled, and eventually collected their meticulously crafted drinks from a stern-faced barista wearing an ironic t-shirt and a fedora. A guy in his 20s, wearing skinny jeans and a plaid shirt and a beanie, which might as well have been the clientele's uniform, came in carrying a heavy book. It looked like a nice academic volume, hardcover, black, 
cloth binding, nice paper, he ordered and sat at a table near the middle of the shop, scanning his phone while waiting for his drink to come up at the bar. After collecting it, he returned to the table near the center of the room and began his rather embarrassing and earnest religious display. He was arranging his book and his latte so that he could take a picture of them with his phone. He spent five minutes doing this. And I assure you uh, that although five minutes might seem like a very long time to spend doing something like this, I am certain that it was five minutes because I clocked him, which says something about me I know. He tried capturing the image with the book on its side next to the latte. Then he tried a few with the spine open to hold the book upright and the latte in front of it. He wasn't finished. He then attempted several shots with a coffee cup perched on top of the book, but I'm guessing here the light wasn't good enough to capture both the latte art and the title of the book. Eventually, he started taking images with his book in his hand, including a few attempts without the latte at all. I began to worry his latte was growing cold and the foam turning dry and ugly. Eventually, he captured an image of the book on its side, propped up by his hand at an angle behind the cup. <laughs> he tapped the phone screen for a while, editing and posting photo online. Finally, he set his phone down and began to drink his latte then. He opened the book. Now, here's the best part. I swear, he looked at the book for at most 45 seconds. He flipped it open once, thumbed a page or two, his eyes blank and disinterested, and then closed it, pulled out his phone again to see what kind of response the image got him. <laughs> I don't know if I should laugh or cry at this. A moment or two later, my wife texted me. I alerted her about the keen observation I was making in the coffee shop. She told me to get back to work. Then she asked, then she asked what shop are you in? I told her, and moments later, she texted me the image the guy had posted on Instagram, right? Which blew my mind, right? I said, you're like Batman. Um, she took this for high praise. Only when I saw the image, though, that I noticed the title of the book. It was John Frame's The Doctrine of the Word of God. Perhaps it would have been slightly more ironic if the book had been Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death or Jacques Ellel's The Humiliation of the Word. But this was one nearly perfect, a book about the primacy of God's word as a prop in a social media post. C'est la vie, right? As is life, when we allow the pathways of Instagram to define for us what it means to be spiritual, God save us from having empty, superficial, meaningless Christian existence where the only reason we would pursue God is so others would say, oh, you're spiritual. We've emptied the thing out, right? So over 2,000 years ago, Jesus dealt with this right between the eyes when he said, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people to be seen by them for then you will have no reward from your fathers in heaven. So what's, what crazy, what's crazy about all this, right? Like you might be the kind of person who like abhors superficiality, right? You're like, yeah, you know? And yet, still not taking Jesus' advice about these things, right? Because half because you don't really pray or read or give anyway, and if you do, you definitely want people to know about it, Right? I mean, what's the point? See, this is why we have to sit with this just for a second. Not only because of the superficial undercurrents of our culture, which says that all that matters is what people think about you, right? Which we often find ourselves swept away in, but because it's possible by habit and repetition that our own approach to prayer be swept in the undercurrent of superficiality. 
right? And I know this is the second week of the Lord's Prayer and we haven't even got to it yet, but let me just say a few things that are important that we will sit with uh, and then actually get to the prayer. If we don't actually, y'all, let the rubber meet the road here, right, in terms of actually doing the things that Jesus is saying, then you will be stuck in superficial experiences of what it means to be a Christian, right? So why do I say that? If we begin this conversation about prayer thinking that all you have to do is nod your head in church, then we will drastically, dramatically miss the whole point, right? Unless you actually do something, unless you actually listen to Jesus and and begin obeying his wisdom in your real life as an individual, you will stay stuck in superficial forms of Christianity whose goal is just image management, right? Now, I'm just going to blow your mind. I know this is going to be just drop a crazy truth bomb here. You know what is better than talking about prayer? You know, it's, you know what's better than reading books about prayer? You know what's better than listening to just gripping, fascinating sermons about prayer? <laughs> you know what's better than writing sermons about prayer? Praying. It's remarkable. I know, it just blows our mind. And if we go through this, and if it, if it doesn't make its way into the way you actually live as an individual, actually praying, then it's all for naught, right? It's a beautiful, or as Jesus would put it, it's a beautiful craftsman-style house, right, that everyone would see on the road and say, that's how you build a house right there, that tumbles in a heap of its own rubble when persecution and hardship comes because it's built on sand. And you know what he said that was? You know what that picture was talking about? Those who actually do what Jesus said and those that actually don't. It's a parable of two houses. You know the one? You know what the difference between the two houses were? The, the one, the, 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 is this guy actually did the things I'm talking about. This guy just listened. And what's always struck me about this parable is that the two houses, for all uh, we can imagine, look identical from the outside. You could look, you could be going down the street, both houses beautiful, both well-built. I mean, craftsmen, you know? I mean, there's, you know, skillful workers right there. Looks great, love it. It's got all the stuff, all the trendy things we all like now, right? It's the subterranean, right? It's the under the surface that was the difference between one crumbling when things got hard and the other one being able to endure the storm. And the difference is that one person actually did the things that Jesus said instead of just listening to it. So as we begin to look at the Lord's Prayer, right, what we'll see is that this prayer Jesus gave us, the prayer that most of us probably have memorized, right, serves at the very heartbeat of Jesus' teaching. It's almost the Lord's Prayer is almost an entire summary of his ministry condensed into one little poem, one little prayer that's easy to remember, right? So let's just read it together. Matthew 6 should be up on the screen. Now, before we read it, I, I, I want to tell you there's, uh, there's some differences in some translations of the Lord's Prayer. The KJV, if you have a KJV version, it's going to add on at the end, uh, thine is the power, thine is the glory forever and ever, amen. You guys know that one, right? At the end of the circle. Okay, so it's, it might be omitted from your translation because it's very interesting. A lot of the earliest manuscripts we have do not have that in there. And it appears around the fourth or fifth century, they realized this prayer doesn't have amen at the end. And they added this doxology. So that it works. A lot of times I do it myself. I kind of like it, right? It kind of resolves the prayer. If you actually look at the prayer, it doesn't have an amen. He just goes on to the next thing. So they added that. So some, some have it, some don't. We're just going to read what the, our version have, which is the ESV. Um, so anyway, let's, let's read it together. Okay, it should be on the screen. Here we go. Ready? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, right? So if you want to add the other one in your own prayer time, go for it. Let me just point out, a, you know, the is the king. So it's all good. Let's, let me just point out a few things here. It's probably safe to say that Jesus is not telling us to pray in a way that he himself does not pray, all right? So when he goes away to the mountain, we talked about last week, when he goes away to solitary places, when he goes away to wilderness, it's a safe bet that these ideas and realities were guiding his own prayers, right? And if we look at it, we realize that the first half of this prayer is addressing the priority of who God is, Father, Holy, King, okay? The second, dealing with how God interacts with us and therefore how we interact with others. Now, you know, it's interesting. So, so first half, Father, God, Father, Holy, King. Second half, provisions, forgiveness, protection, right? And then we live in response to that. So you could overlay the two greatest commandments over this prayer. What did Jesus say two greatest commandments, commandments are, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Second is like it. Love your neighbor as itself. The two, uh, he says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You could overlay those two over this prayer. The first, reorienting your entire life, all of your thinking around what? Who God is, what he's done, what he's doing. And the second, responding to his action primarily, right, by forgiving others, reflecting his own action around you and your relationships where you live. That's what the prayer is inviting us into. And I think it's safe to say that when Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this, blow your mind, he really meant it. Okay, now that does not mean that if you don't pray those exact words, you know, you're not really praying. Read the Psalms, read the Psalms, all right? All right, so we're not talking about memorizing something and having to regurgitate some things that can easily become empty phrases. What we are talking about are guiding realities, which will, I think, invigorate your engaging with God if you're able to get past the performance type praying that we talked about, right? So many of us don't pray because we say we don't know how. And yet here, Jesus is giving us a very simple thing. Most children can memorize it, right? And at the same time, inviting us into a deep, profound uh, reflection on who God is, realities about him. So the prayer reminds us of the great truth of who God is, who, who he is, what he's done, what he's doing. And that's gonna be the lion's share of what we sit with as we go through the prayer. We're gonna discern out what it's saying about God because that's the first half. And the first thing it says is this, our father, right? Those are the first words of the prayer. Not my father, our father, right? Now, calling God father was not totally new and unique to the Jews. There were a handful of Psalms and a few other places in the Old Testament that referred to God as father. It's not a dominant idea uh, in the Old Testament. It is there, but it's just not dominant. Jesus almost exclusively called God father. The father, my father, our father, even your father, which of course gets at his identity as the son of God. But Jesus, as he perfectly images who God is to us, seems to be extending the idea of God as father to you, right? In fact, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, or in the Sermon on the Mount, he'll call him your father, right? So it's apparently totally open and invitational, as if to say, if you want a perfect, loving father in God, you're welcome to him, 
right? Pull up a chair, right? Dad's ready and attentive to hang with you. And in Scripture, this is interesting in Scripture, we see evidence that the Jews, that the Hebrew people ultimately believed you had one of two fathers. <laughs> either, either the devil was your father or God was your father. Pretty stark. And the distinguisher for them was whose will you carried out. So in John 8, Jesus says to religious leaders of his day, you are of your father, the devil. <laughs> Get him, Jesus. Right? He says, because your will is to do your father's will. He was a murderer. And guess what they did? They murdered Jesus, right? He says, when he lies, he speaks his own tongue because he's a liar and the father of lies. In Acts 13, Paul calls a Jewish false prophet the a son of the devil. Conversely, in Scripture, those who yield to God and carry out his will in the earth are called sons of God. And here, Jesus is inviting us into that dynamic to be a child of God. That's the invitation. Every time we pull up this prayer, this is the thing that he wants in your mind. That you are a child of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, all of us have dads. Some good, not, some not so good, right? Even the good ones, flawed by their own sin. No one's dad's perfect. I'm a father, and I'm saving for my kids' counseling now, right? <laughs> Therefore, some people will struggle with the idea of God as father, won't they? Because they had uh, an absent dad, or an angry dad, or a foolish dad, or a substance abusive dad, or just an abusive dad. God help us, right? And Jesus knows this, y'all. This is why he spent so much time detailing exactly what this father was like. See, Jesus said he is not an absentee dad or a working, working, too busy dad. He's not vindictive. He's not apathetic. In fact, he's the kind of father who waits, eyes on the horizon, attentive to his son who had betrayed him eagerly looking on the horizon for his son who had called him dead to his face, spent half of his money on whores. God is the kind of father who sits on the porch, scanning the horizon, waiting for him. That's the kind of father God is. He's the kind of dad who leaves the 99 and seeks out the lost, the wounded, the broken one. He's the kind of dad who loves and values the one that others would say is a worthless lost cause. Quit investing your time in them. They've turned on you. They don't value you. They're not obeying you. And he's the kind of dad who pursues even when others would say, you should just give up. Read Luke 15. He's the kind of dad who makes the sacrifice, who takes the fall, who takes the blame so his kids don't have to. I'm all sorts of things. I mean, I'm not that kind of dad, right? So when you look at the kind of father Jesus portrays as God, 
It is a father who seems to make, by others' account, unpractical, costly, and potentially wasteful decisions so his children have the chance to flourish and live. And his real goal seems to just be that they're with him. That seems to be what he wants, that they are just near him, with him, enjoying him, right? So much so that others will look on the kind of affection and say, you threw him a party? The son who called you dead to your face, right? Made you split the entirety of your capital, right? Wasted it on prostitutes. You threw him a party? Exemplified in the older son of the prodigal son. This is the kind of father Jesus seems to think God is. In fact, Jesus calls his father Abba, it's interesting. It's like the name that kids use for their dad, like daddy. It's a name of intimacy and affection. Now, depending on your personality and your church background, you either love that or would rather ignore it. Can I just challenge you to be aware of your own feelings towards this? Because you can't deny that Jesus used it and Paul uses it in Romans 8 and Galatians 4, saying that by Jesus, we cry out, Abba, to God, Daddy. The term assumes you are in a place of deep affections with the Father, right? Which is why some of us struggle with it. It's not a sterile, distant, cold, dutiful relationship that emotionally unavailable religious people would prefer, right? They want a harsh God who demands you tow the line so you can ridicule everyone who can't tow the line. (laughs) Is that too much? Jesus images God relationship towards us as intimate, delightful, affectionate, abounding in acceptance and affirmation, right? In fact, Martin Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's kind of a hero of mine, likens the experience of being filled with the Holy Spirit with seeing a father scoop up his child in his arms, hold him tight, and shower him with words of love and affection. He says this, a man and his little child are walking down the road and they're walking hand in hand and the child knows that he is the child of his father. This is the God and the Christian and he knows that the father loves him and rejoices and all that and he's happy in it. There's no uncertainty about it, but all of a sudden, The father, moved by some impulse, takes hold of the child, picks him up, wraps him in his arms, kisses him, embraces him, and showers his love upon him. And then he puts him down, and again they go walking on their way. See, the child knew the father loved him, and he knew that he was a child, but oh, the loving embrace, this extra outpouring of love, this unusual manifestation of it. That's the kind of thing, the spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are, children of God. See, what's more is that this type of love is not absent in the Old Testament. See, we tend to paint the Old Testament as harsh and and, uh, demanding, and then Jesus comes along and softens who God is. But in Zephaniah 3, it says this, the Lord, your God's in your midst, a mighty warrior who will save. He will delight over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love and rejoice over you with singing. So the picture the Bible gives of God is a God who sings over you 
delights over you. This experience would lead John to write, behold what manner of love, right? How lavish the love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called what? Children of God, that's right. And I know some of you are uncomfortable with this, right? Because God's holy and righteous and we have to prove we're children, right? But that's not what we just read. What we just read says he bestows this on us. We don't make ourselves children by his action, actions. He makes us children by his action, right? It's his love that fueled the whole thing, for God so loved, isn't it, right? Isn't it amazing how we can get our heads down in Christian ministry and forget all this? Forget this idea of a, of a God who loves us deeply, who has affections for us, you know? And this is the first thing Jesus wants us to remember about God when you go to pray, that he's a God who loves you deeply, a father who has invited you in. We are praying to a God who lavishes affection on us, who delights over us with singing, right? I mean, I thought we were supposed to delight over him with singing, right? I mean, aren't we? I thought we were supposed to sacrifice for him. Not first, bro. Not first. He's the one who delights in you first. He's the one who sacrifices for you first. Therefore, prayer can't only ever only be response to what God has already done. What we see in the scripture, what Jesus wants us to anchor our prayer in is this idea that God is the kind of God whose affection and love for us befuddles everyone, right? Just like a, the love of a father for his children can befuddle everyone else. Every time we pray, he wants us to know, right? Only when we open our hearts to, a, to God as a loving father will we ever be inspired to reflect his love back to him and to others. It's his love that has always been, y'all, the primary catalyst and motivation for all the great men of God throughout history, right? And I would argue that it is the absence of his love that explains why your prayer life stinks. It's not that you're not trying hard enough, right? Right? The reason some of us struggle in prayer is that we cannot fathom to believe in a God like this. We just can't. It's a lovely thought. But Chris, what if the word gets out, man? God's just going to let everyone pray to him, you know? Like, what about those idiots over at that other church, right? What about those horrible, evil men that did this or that? God's just going to let them pray, right? What about these people holding up systems of injustice, right? Are there people trying to burn down the system of injustice? God's going to perceive their prayers? Just going to, yeah, that's it. So I'm talking, that's why the gospel's scandalous, right? That's why it levels the entire playing field because everyone gets a shot. If anyone can walk in, the people you hate and the people you love, God says, you can call me father to them too, even them, right? It's what makes the gospel. It's why angels stand at the edge of heaven and watch in awe the work of the gospel. And if those excuses don't stop us from believing in a God who is a loving and attentive father, then our own sins come to the front of the line to the excuses, right? And so some of us reverse it. Okay, well, maybe God can love them, but not me, right? <laughs> right? No one knows the things I've done, right? In the dark night of the soul, right? No one knows how evil my heart is and how God can't love me, man. Can't be a father. They're not going to receive me, Chris, right? You don't know me. You don't know the things I've done. People have hurt, right? Well, God does, and he still opens the door. Right? Nothing about all the stuff you've done at all changes the fact that he shed his blood for you on the cross and, and promises to cover it for you if you should want that. Right? He will. Right? And it's all befuddling. Right? Look at me. 
I'm as befuddled as you are that God loves you, okay? I, I, I mean, it's, it's as confusing to me as it is to you, all right? Some of us just can't imagine that we hold a place of deep affection with the Father. Like, we just can't get there. So we don't pray. I ain't gonna pray to this guy who's gunning for me, waiting with a hammer and a lightning bolt to just get me right when I walk into church, right? I ain't gonna pray to that guy. Look, your idea of God has been fostered by something else than the Bible, right? What Jesus, who images God perfectly to us, divinity indwelled, right? What does he say? He's a father. He's not just any kind of father. He's a father who loves you deeply. In fact, I call him Abba. That's what Jesus said. I call Abba, Abba, right? Daddy. It's kind of, I, I assume a place of deep affection with this God. Deuteronomy 9 says, the Lord's portion, portion, so like what I get out of life, you know, your lot in life, the Lord's portion is his people. That's, that's what he wants. <laughs> like that's what he wants. You. That's what, I'm just reading you the Bible, man. I'm just reading you the Bible, all right? Do you know what he says? He found his people in a desert and in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled them. He cared for them. He kept them as the apple of his eye, right? Like, I don't get it either. But if we ignore the depths of his love for us in scripture, where does that leave us? Well, I guess you gotta earn it, all right? Because you've got to sacrifice obedience to drudgery, no to the grindstone, and make it happen, which is not charismatic to anyone. Look, guys, we would be naive to think our cynical attitude, our general cynicism toward life, which many of us possess. Anyone want to just go ahead and admit to that? No one. Okay. All right. Thank you. Leave me up here by myself, all right? We would be naive to think that entrenched cynicism does not also skew our version of who we think God is. Huh? I mean, you can just go through life completely cynical and, and just second-guessing everyone's motives all the time. Like, you'd be naive to think that you don't also apply that to God. What I'm trying to help us get through here is that sometimes our own cynicism that we've learned from experience and from being betrayed and all these horrible things happen to us, it's, it's warranted, right? But if, if we ignore these simple things in Scripture about the depths of God's love for us. If we will refuse to believe these things at face value, then where does that leave us? I mean, this is the great motivator of all of the Christians throughout time and space, the love of God. And many of us get on with our Christian life never informed by his affections for us. And thus we grow stale and crusty, right? Stagnant and apathetic, right? What we see in scripture here we go, wrapping it up, here we go. Eyes are glazing over, I get it, all right. What we see in scripture is a relationship between God and man that is full of sacrifice and obedience. But the motivator is a kind of love that others would call crazy, right? A crazy father for throwing a party for his son, right? God sacrificing for sinners, and a crazy woman pouring out fragrant oil on Jesus worth 50 grand right? It's a bunch of crazies who love each other in such a way that the world is confounded by that what? Love. Confounded by that love. Like if our cultural moment 
needs anything. Doesn't it need people who are crazy about love, right? If our cultural moment needs any, isn't it people who will make great sacrifices, who will love deeply even, at, even when it costs them? Yeah. Amen. Let's stand and pray.